there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. The Wonderland Murders, which later inspired scenes in Boogie Nights, as well as a feature film starring Val Kilmer's John Holmes, took place on the night of July 1st, shocking Los Angeles with a crime that involved porn and drugs and guns and money. Sandra Day O'Connor was nominated to the Supreme Court, and one entire day later, wow, she was actually confirmed by the Senate in a 99-0 vote. The Jacksons kicked off a 36-city tour, already feeling tensions as a family, and way out at the edge of explored space, Voyager 2 encountered Saturn. And as the month wrapped up, the baseball strike concluded as well. How did we ever find time for movies in July of 1981? Hi, everybody. I'm Drew McQueenie, and welcome to 80s All Over. I'm here as always. Hi, with, oh, of course, Scott Weinberg, my co-host. What's up, buddy? That's me talking over Drew to introduce myself. Nothing symbolic there. Uh, <laughs> welcome to 80s All Over, July 1981, the films that got run over by Raiders of the Lost Ark. We're just going to jump right in because it is such a strange lineup. And I think one of the things that most embodies this month of movies, which is full of strange nostalgia, um, you know, a lot of films looking back. We're going to start with Beatlemania, which is truly a baffling piece of pop detritus. Beatlemania is, it should be illegal. It should, it should what it should be. I know it's not because uh, there was this, there was also Sgt. Pepper. Beatlemania, as the poster notoriously indicates, are not the Beatles, Drew, but an amazing simulation. I could see if you wanted to go see a live experience where they were playing Beatles songs and it was the early 80s and, you know, it had been 20 years since the Beatles performed together. I can maybe see that if you're a fan and you just want to hear somebody play some songs live. But the film version of it is so weird because these guys maybe from a distance work as the Beatles. The minute you get up close to them not even remotely close, and it just becomes uncomfortable. This is a glorified karaoke band that somehow got a Broadway show and a movie out of the deal and probably got set up for life. Even after John Lennon was murdered, they still toured, and they still exploited great musicians for their gain. I'm not going to lie, I made it through 20 minutes of this movie. On principle, I won't watch the rest of it. I'm sorry. And it's also, it's one of these things where the whole thing is cut to, like, flash pop culture at you, and it's done in the most facile surface way. They're saying nothing. So it just feels like, look, it's the 60s, and here's some songs you know. If it was actors playing the Beatles, and it was almost like a biopic, then the actors are playing their music, then at least that would have some credibility to it. This is literally, like you said, stock footage, 
and Nowhere Man or whatever is playing over it, and it's not even the real song. It's it's for idiots. Mm. I want to move on to this next film because uh, it, it's there's so much to unpack in a movie that no one listening to this podcast is ever going to end up seeing. Now, the comedy that pumps the fun into summer, Gas. It flies, cries, rocks, rolls. It's greedy, speedy, fast, a blast. It'll fill you up, knock you down, break you up, and spin you around. It's gas. There is no relief. Rated R. What the hell is this movie? Um, True. I'm like, I don't know what was more surprising. How abysmal this movie is, or that when I double checked for my research, I'm like, oh, that can't be that thick, Wolf. Yeah, it is. Uh, we're going to get into that in a moment because this movie, impossible to find. Paramount put one version of it out on VHS at one point, and that's it. It's racist. It's sexist. It's stupid. It's basically Three Stooges level jokes. Howie Mandel is in it. Susan Anspach. Uh, Donald Sutherland plays a guy who looks like he shot his entire role in one afternoon in a fake helicopter. Sterling Hayden is in it, and I don't know what booze money they offered him, but it's shockingly bad work by Sterling Hayden, a man who I genuinely think was rarely bad in anything. As you mentioned, the screenplay is credited to, they call him Richard Wolf in the credits, but it is indeed Dick Wolf, the man with the best name in show business. I can't believe that this is him. Like, you look at what his work is now and what he's known for, and it's all built around social ideas, and it's all built around turning reality into television, and this is so far off the mark from what he is known for that it wouldn't surprise me if he bought it and buried it because I would if I were him. It's terrible. I also want to bring this up as an example of something we're going to see a lot of in this decade, which is the comedy film where they can't afford the rich, talented version of a celebrity from a family. And so instead they hire the younger brother who's not very funny, but who kind of resembles his older brother. So we're going to hope you buy it a la Jim Belushi, a la Joel Murray, and uh, Jim Hanks. And now in this movie, I was treated to, and I really, I feel like it was a treat, a privilege, really, to witness the work of Peter Aykroyd. Oh, dude. There's a sequence early in the film where he's, like, bantering with Susan Ansbach, and it is painful. It is, like, him clearly trying to, like, do the cadence and the tone of his brother's voice. Well, when he starts talking, and he kind of sounds like, Damn, I forgot a little bit. and He's got the Canadian thing going, but he's not funny. It's really weird. Yeah. And, you know, no offense to Peter Ackroyd. I'm sure he's a sweet guy, but it's like you blame the producers. You're like, oh, well, we can't afford Dan Ackroyd. So if we put Peter Ackroyd's name in there, maybe we'll confuse some people into thinking that's who they like. And the running joke that he is doing in the movie is that his sister is a hot blonde and she is going out on dates with Howie Mandel and she's out in the world and he follows her around because he doesn't want her to have sex with anybody else because he wants to. That's the actual storyline he's playing in the film. It's loathsome. Howie Mandel is the romantic lead here. You know, hey, good luck with that. There was a, a brief period where there were a number of movies made that had gas lines and sort of that that culture in it. And we'll get to a couple next month as well. But it feels like this is just the laziest version of how can we put something together super, super fast that just is every dick and fart joke possible 
built around a gas station. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this was an era when SNL was making was huge. So you could see a lot of these people trying to like throw together farce comedies piecemeal. And and gas feels a lot like a whole bunch of sketches. If your movie is going to be mostly like barely connected sketches, make them funny because you're already robbing us of an interesting narrative. So if you're going to be just a bunch of episodes, make those episodes funny. And they're not. <laughs> if, uh, you know, Dick Wolf, at least as a screenwriter, went on to other stuff. I don't know this director at all. It looks like a Canadian tax shelter production. It's eminently forgettable. So let's go ahead and move on. It's better than Beatlemania. You know what? I, I don't know that I can argue with you. I okay, because no matter how bad it is, Gas is at least somebody's attempted an original idea. Better than Beatlemania. Yes. Exactly. So they could quote you on the back if they ever put Gas out now. Better than Beatlemania, Scott Weinberg. So we move from one of the final quote unquote Gas Crisis comedies to the first 3D film of the 80s, for better or for worse. And now it's time for Drew and I to talk about... Coming at you. Oh, sir. <laughs> when the hero in Coming at you dynamites the hideout of the villain, <laughs> did you find that your three 3D viewers ow, made you part of the explosive action? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Coming at you. When they light the fuse, you hold the dynamite? Coming at you. Rated R. So I talked my mom into taking me to see this in the theater. Ah, nice. So we have very different stories. So tell me how this went. And I did, I did not mention to her in the pitch that it was rated R. I didn't bring that up. I just said, it's a Western and it's 3D. And you guys talk about 3D movies. So I want to go see a 3D movie. And she bought it. And so she took me to see it. And all I remember is at a certain point, about 20 minutes into the film, being yanked by my arm down the middle of the theater row with my mom, red faced going, that's it. Enough. We're out. And then going to see Arthur instead, because something pushed her button and outraged her. When this played Fantastic Fest, I went to go see it specifically because I had not seen it since 81. And I wondered what set her off. And after watching it again as an adult, I still have no idea. I don't know why she flipped out in the middle of the it movie. It was probably, yeah, I think it might have been a bit too violent. It's a pretty hardcore violent Western. And I'm glad you mentioned The Draft House because you and I both have very different experiences on this film. You saw this as a kid. Me, I grew up obsessed with the 3D films, which we'll cover. I had seen them all except Coming At You. And then a couple of years ago, Draft House resurrected it, and I saw it on the big screen. In many ways, it's a silly, laughable, amateurish movie. But with a big crowd and with the 3D and everybody really enjoying the kitschiness of it, it's it's a fun piece of schlock. If you like watching it by yourself as a film analyst, it's pretty dire. Well, I like <laughs> that Tony Anthony, the guy who is the, the star and the writer and the producer and everything, he looks like Kevin Pollack. So it's like if Kevin Pollack said, I'm making a Clint Eastwood movie and I'm playing the lead. He's not a tough cowboy looking actor, but he is that character because he wanted to be. And I like that he hired somebody else, an Italian, to do the film, to direct it. And it is a pretty spirited piece of exploitation. I also am willing to bet you money that this is one of the movies that was bouncing around in Quentin Tarantino's head when he was writing Kill Bill. Because there is a wedding here that really reminds me of what happens at the beginning of Kill Bill Volume 2. Uh, it's a goofball movie. It's very cheap. Uh, and, and a lot of it is pretty bad, but it does, like you said, it has like kind of a, a kind of a fun, free willing B movie spirit. And the whole premise is some bad guys bust up this guy's wedding. They take his girl. He heals. He goes after them and he's going to kill everybody and get her. And that's it. That's really the whole movie with a lot of 3D. I think there's some really fun stuff in it. It's a little exhausting. He gets a lot of revenge in the movie, not just some, but a lot. The 3D, it's so 
omnipresent and in your face in this film that that's part of the fun of it is it's not a 3d movie where the 3d is incidental it's a 3d movie where every two seconds they turn to you and like point at you and have a spear go past you and a snake comes at you it's constant for a a spanish american co-production it made a decent amount of money and those guys would come back a couple years later and uh with treasure of the four crowns and kickstart an abbreviated but very colorfully bad 3d renaissance which drew and i will be happy to cover uh as it goes on but this is the first when you when you want to chart the 3d arc uh of the 1980s coming at you is the progenitor but you want to talk about a semi-ridiculous movie that i wish had this kind of energy it's our next film from the director of enter the dragon it's a far less successful movie called force five he's got the strength he's big he's bad chosen for his brute power and animalistic fury to join Force 5. He's Sonny Barnes, California heavyweight karate champion. They are five against a thousand. The odds are even. Force 5, rated R. It's a little bit more fun on paper than it is in practice. Would you agree, Drew? Yeah, and that's the problem is you put a team together and they're going to go on a mission. And in this case, it's a fun mission because it's a cult of martial arts experts on an island, so you have to go infiltrate and hopefully kick some ass. Dude, that should be nothing but wall-to-wall awesome. I should love every second of that. Five distinct uh, martial artists who are going to invade this island and rescue the daughter, played by our our interview guest, the lovely Miss Amanda Wiss, in her feature film debut. It does have some pretty fun action beats, but boy, it's got a lot of talk, man. The movie seems to have asked delusions of grandeur as if it's an actual narrative that we're interested in, and it's not. Yeah, well, it takes forever to get going. And, you know, movies like this, when they're putting the team together, I'm fine with that as long as every stop along the way is interesting. And it's really not in this movie. And then there's something bizarre about the fact that they use Bong Su-Han as the uh, cult leader in this. He's not the actual bad guy from Enter the Dragon, but he looks a lot like him. And he was perfectly used in the Kentucky Fried movie for Fistful of Yen. And that sequence by itself was as popular as anything that came out that year. Like, that was a huge kind of breakout moment for him and to use him here as a serious cult leader you can't it's like using leslie nielsen seriously after airplane they broke them in some way and that's the other thing that confuses me a little robert klaus enter the dragon is a gorgeous movie it really is it's scope and it's beautiful and i love the way it, and there's not one other thing in robert klaus's career really that looks like it so i feel like enter the dragon is this accident in the middle of his career yeah robert klaus not a very artful director he knew how to point his camera at action and force five might be one of his most handsome looking movies and it still looks like a buck rogers episode all right moving on from a nominally entertaining action programmer to a drama about two teenagers who fall in love and it's very romeo and Giulietti. it's franco zeffirelli's endless love martin hewitt is david Brooke Shields is Jade. You and Jade have pushed this too far. I don't want him in this house! He's in love with that girl. Jade! If that kid comes near me or anybody in my family ever again, I'll tell him! Brooke Shields. Martin Hewitt. Endless love. I didn't see this in the 80s, and I didn't see it because it was marketed a certain way. It was a girl's movie, and I wasn't terribly interested. It's not the movie I thought it was. And when I went back and watched it this time, I'll say this. I think there's two movies here. And the first movie, the movie that is the first half of this thing, 
it's fairly well directed. I think the acting is really good. And I think Zeffirelli does a nice job of setting up this world where these parents have become so permissive because, you know, they're cool and it's the late 70s, early 80s and they're the cool parents. And so they let everybody kind of get away with everything and watching how that permissiveness backfires on their family and kind of burns a big hole right in the middle of them is is interesting. And it builds to a pretty crazy place. And then the second half of the movie is, I think, a shit burger from one end to the other. It goes nuts. It's like the director had a decision of, do I want to stick with relatively sincere melodrama or do I want to go just full bore push button exploitation? That's what he seems to be going for in the second half. It's about a a 17-year-old boy from a wealthy family who falls in love with a 15-year-old girl from a very bohemian family, and uh, they're both very uh, friendly with each other's families and everything's great, but things slowly start to get out of control. She's doing bad at school. She tries to take her dad's uh, pills to stay awake, uh, and that causes the dad says, now you can't see the boy anymore and for 30 days until school is out. And then the young boy, I understand the whole idea that young love is too passionate to be contained and all that. If that is the screenwriting precipice that you're hanging on, that he couldn't wait 30 days to see his girlfriend, and then you see what happens because he couldn't wait 30 days. Fuck this kid. And I think there's a huge piece of miscasting here. I actually don't want to look his name up because as far as I'm concerned, he's David from Endless Love, and he's creepy. And he is cast creepy at the beginning so that at the point where the movie kind of turns and you realize that he has a deeper sort of break with reality and responsibility than he should you're already way ahead of that. He's already a creep from frame one. There's so many interesting things here. James Spader plays her older brother. And this is, I think the very first of his, I'm a rich piece of shit. Both families are pretty rich, right? Yeah. I mean, like, I'm not saying that it has to be a versus B, but I kept getting confused for the first time. I'm like, which one is the have and which one is the have not? (laughs) Uh, Neither really. It's they're both halves. It's just that her family is the bohemian loose family and his family's uptight. And there's even some interesting stuff here that Zeffirelli stages well. That first big party that they throw where Shirley Knight and her husband are there and Shirley Knight's younger than I've ever seen her in this. And she's kind of striking in this movie. Um, But she's the mom of the family. And she really she kind of has her eye on David as well and thinks he's beautiful. And she even sees the kids having sex that first night. There's the red flag. And then just watches. Zeffirelli, man. I'm watching this scene where the mother comes downstairs, she sees her daughter having passionate sex, not just an approving glance, a smile as she walks up the steps. No, she like pops popcorn, she sits down, it goes from, oh, that's sweet, the mother appreciates her daughter's female awakening. It goes from that for a split second to, ew! And the way they stage it, they make sure that there's a lot of lingering nudity and then make sure that her father emphasizes in dialogue over and over, she's 15, she's 15, she's 15. So you're a creep for being in the theater now. It wants it both ways. It wants to exploit the nudity, but it also wants to make sure that it emphasizes over and over. She's way too young for any of this. They want both. If you go and read Roger Ebert's review of this uh, movie, I don't know the book by Scott Spencer at all, but obviously Ebert does. Oh, yeah. He has disowned it more than once and the remake of this as well. Oh, Ebert goes berserk, though. Ebert's whole thing is he broke the book. And it's one of those things where he's really not even reviewing the movie after a certain point. He's reviewing the adaptation. And as an adaptation, it must be a nightmare because it left him 
sputtering and indignant over what they did to this story. So uh, well, there are some interesting things. It is a very well shot movie. I'll give it that. If you find yourself stuck watching Endless Love, try to focus on the cinematography because it is for a very basic plot. It, it's a pretty beautiful looking movie. Yeah, secondarily, Drew, why don't you uh, tell our viewers who pops up for one key sequence and gives our our not hero, our moron anti-hero, the idea of how to ruin his life. This is wonderful because it goes to one of my theories, and we're going to get into this later in the decade when we get to like Rain Man and some of his bigger films. But I have a theory that Tom Cruise does not actually speak in the voice that we have become used to, that when he's just hanging out with friends, Mickey Mouse, when he gets indignant in films... He loses it, and suddenly the voice pops back. There's that Rain Man bit where Dustin Hoffman's in the car and yelling at him about underpants. What, what difference does it make where you buy underwear? What difference does it make? Underwear is underwear. It is underwear wherever you buy it. In Cincinnati or wherever. Hey, Mark. And it's Mickey Mouse, pure and simple. His entire appearance in this film, Tom Cruise is... A kid. He pops up. He's playing soccer. He lays down next to them. He tells this story about what he did when he was a kid. And the entire time he's talking, he sounds like this. <laughs> Eight years old, and I was into RC. You're full of it. No, I'm serious. I lit a whole pile of newspapers. You ever try to light a whole pile of wet newspapers? Jeez, it smokes like crazy. I got real scared, see. But you want to hear the wild part? It's like I'm a hero or something. They thought I saved the whole block. <laughs> it's his real voice. Cut to. The next scene, and our stupid non-hero is now debating whether he should set a fire in his girlfriend's house and put it out so he can be the hero. And then, of course, he gets caught. And he burns their house down in about 11 minutes, which leads to the other funniest moment in the film accidentally, where it's the very end of the fire. Everything is super dramatic. The fire is the end of the world. And I started laughing because the music is the serious version of the Lionel Richie theme song but it's an orchestral demon version of it. It's the funniest piece of score in the entire... It's great. Drew, I, love I don't it. know if you dug this up in your research, but you'll be happy to know that the creepy and unconvincing Martin Hewitt went on to a career filled with Skinamax softcore porn. Fantastic. Speaking of hardcore porn, George Hamilton once played Zorro. That's all I got. <laughs> 20th Century Fox and Melvin Simon Productions present George Hamilton. And George Hamilton as... <laughs> one destiny. To help the helpless. Two brothers. To befriend the friendless. One legend. To defeat... Feedless. Two color schemes. I thought it helps to keep them guessing. Thrill to the magnificent return of the two and only Sorrow. Why do you wait for here he is? Arrest him, Franco! Swing with Sorrow. Ball with Sorrow. And catch a few Z's with Sorrow. You're the bravest man I've I'm very impressed myself, too. Sorrow, the gay blade. I'm trying to master the segue, and I'm not there yet, Drew. Yeah, not there. Not there. That was, I like what you were going for, um, but you are insane. Here's why the movie exists, because Love at First Bite was a monster runaway hit. And Love at First Bite was George Hamilton playing Dracula, and it was the sort of Mel Brooks 
form of, okay, we're going to take this, we're going to rib it nonstop, we're going to make fun of all the logic weirdnesses in it, and I'll give him credit. I think Love at First Bite is one of those movies that is perfectly of its moment. When it came out, it was exactly what people were in the mood for, and it works. You know, it's a sitcom movie, but it's a funny sitcom movie. Yeah, it's okay. and, it, and, it's, and man, it has energy to spare, and it's what I, I think the secret is with Mel Brooks. I think everybody involved in Love at First Bite loves Dracula movies. I think they had a really good time making fun of Dracula movies. I don't know if anybody who made this movie likes Zorro movies at all. But then again, I don't know that Zorro movies have an ongoing audience. I think these might be literal relics. Not quite in the same vein, but this film kind of reminds me of the same category. Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen, Legend of the Lone Ranger, uh, Fiendish Plot of Dr. Fu Manchu. It's like it, it, like these were the IPs available uh, to these people. And nobody was asking for it. Nobody wanted this. And Zorro was so established and so overdone by that point that, okay, time to maybe do a comedic version. And that makes sense in many ways. Now, here's the weird part. If you had asked me a week ago, what do you think of this movie? I would have said I saw it in the mid-80s on VHS. And even as a kid, I didn't like it very much. You asked me yesterday and I'd say, it ain't great, but it's not nearly as bad as I remember. Well, the problem is the serious Zorro movie they actually made. You know, they have the opening credit where they dedicated to Ruben Mamoulian and other filmmakers. Oh, and that score. They use the score. They use the theme so many times. I love that theme. And the size of it, it's a real Zorro movie. It's just not funny. And I don't know what the comic take is here because he's basically the real. He's really Zorro for the first half. And then when they introduced the entire idea of the gay thing. I, I don't get it. I don't get why that was their take. Yeah, it's a weird choice. Like, well, I get it. Let's make two Zoros. Oh, I got it. Two Zoros, but one's gay. I'd be like, why not just two Zoros? That's kind of a funny idea. But Brenda Vaccaro, very funny in this movie. Brenda Vaccaro is the standout. I remember, I chuckled a couple times at her. And Drew, if I live to see a thousand, I don't think I'll ever see a louder performance in my lifetime than Ron Liebman in this movie. Oh, my God. Every scene. Like, Ron Liebman, you, uh, our listeners, would know as the dean from Up the Academy, and he's also famous for playing Rachel's father on Friends. Oh, you've seen him in a million things. He's, he's one of those guys, yeah. Yeah, he obviously knows how to do stage comedy because he knows how to pitch his voice to 11 and a half. My guess is somebody told him that he could sell the accent if he yells it. Oh, boy. And, and he even has a few funny moments, but his decibel level is so freaking... <laughs> Hi. <laughs> and I think Lauren Hutton is taking this all way too seriously. She's she's in the wrong movie. But it's one of those things where the size of it, certainly they they're on the dartboard. They made the film that they were setting out to parody. But then the parody is where they fall down. I just don't think they ever pushed it over into funny. Yeah, no. And it's not even really parody. It's just farce. It's like just a goofy version of Zorro. It's not mocking any of the conventions or the ideas in a Zorro or, or a romantic adventure. It's not mocking anything. It's just being sitcom jokes in a Zorro story. Your buddy from uh, from Popeye, Donovan Scott, shows up as uh, the mute. Is that supposed to be like, well, they're all white people playing Hispanic people, but because it's Hollywood 1981. Yeah, but Donovan Scott as the mute poncho actually is Fairly funny. Love Donovan Scott. There's nothing worse than when a movie believes a joke is funny and uses it over and over and over. Pipples. Oh, God. Pipples. It's supposed to be people or peoples, and they say pipples. And it's like, that's not funny once. I almost have trouble even acknowledging that that was meant as a joke. It's just that awful and that unrelenting. So Zorro gave the gay blade... 
not nearly as bad as I remember, but not very funny. And when you look at uh, the director's track record, our last time discussing Peter Medak was The Changeling, the George C. Scott ghost story. And the next time we'll be discussing him on this podcast will be for the Men's Club in 1986, weirdly out of his element. Yeah, no, he's not even out of his element. Peter Medak, was, I think, is a guy who's just the, tef- the definition of a director for hire. Didn't he do Species 2? He did, but like his best stuff is his English crime stuff or his English. Like he did the ruling class in the 70s. He's like, he's an interesting filmmaker who certainly has taken a lot of paycheck gigs, no question. So, yeah, we're talking about Zorro as something that basically was the payoff. Somebody has a hit, whatever the next film is, builds off of that or in some way trades on it. And especially this month, we have three movies that are all direct results of a giant monster hit, which was 10. It was interesting. How a hit cannot just blossom for the writer, director, producer, but also for the leads. And you could take 10 and kind of do a family tree and see what films directly exist because of 10. With Blake Edwards, you know, Blake was a guy that I think felt trapped during part of his career making Pink Panther movies and had other things he wanted to do. 10 was a step towards that. It was the more personal California-based comedy. He was trying to talk about the culture that he was observing that he was part of. And I think he took the success of 10 and he made what is easily the most indulgent film of his comedy career, S.O.B. Blake Edwards, the man who gave the world the Pink Panther, then went on to create a perfect 10, knows everything there is to know about Hollywood. All right, quiet now on a bell. That's why he wants to destroy it. The motion picture that exposes America's sweetheart. Oh, just for laughs. I'll fix it so you never do another picture in this town as long as you live. S.O.B. Wow, there's a lot to unpack in this movie. Okay, it seems like uh, prior to 10, he had had a string of bombs and a a string of problems. Things were recut, uh, taken out of his hands. A lot of the uh, studio bullshit that is covered in S.O.B. is stuff that Blake Edwards dealt with directly. You take all your frustrations about your job and you take $30 million and you just make a fuck you farce. That's what S.O.B. It's not entirely successful, but S.O.B. is probably the biggest middle finger to Hollywood you'll ever see come out of Hollywood. And it uses a lot of real stories. You know, the, there's a, an entire run towards the end of this movie uh, involving Felix Farmer, uh, Richard Mulligan's character, and his eventual fate. That is directly taken from things that happened with John Barrymore's body that was stolen, and it was left in Errol Flynn's study for him to find. I think that there's a lot of this that is him trying to work in real Hollywood stuff. In one of those cases of art imitating life, imitating art, when they made this movie, which deals with the idea that they took an expensive bomb and they tried to use the idea of a family star bearing her breasts as the selling point, that really was the selling point of SOB. All anybody talked about before this film came out was that Julie Andrews showed her tits in it. And it was crazy because that cultural conversation had to be parsed in a way where Time Magazine could write a piece about, well, you're going to see Julie Andrews tits. I mean, that was the selling point of this film, which is so strange. Yeah, you're right. It really, the movie does have its cake and eat it too, because it is, it is satirizing the idea that Hollywood would exploit a, a very chaste and, and a family-friendly movie star. It kind of played on that. Go see the movie where Julia Andrews is topless. It is both exploitative, but 
This movie has a lot of funny people in it, okay? Oh, yeah, and funny and great sequences. There's whole stretches of this that I truly love. But there are some pratfalls and some elaborate slapstick in this movie that is just not not good. There's a running joke in this movie involving a dog and its owner that is one of the most callous, unfunny, and tone-deaf pieces of running comedy I've ever seen in a film, and there's no payoff. So all it is is this mean storyline. The film opens with a man running on the beach and he drops dead. And then throughout the film, we keep cutting back to this man as his body is washed up on the shore and his dog is sitting next to his body. And it's meant to be dark, dark comedy that, oh, all this craziness is happening in this beach house. But yet 10 feet away, there's a dead body and nobody cares. That's the joke. But it's not because the payoff is that that guy is a forgotten character actor and that he has been utterly and completely forgotten by Hollywood. And by the end of the movie, Felix Farmer's body is stolen. That guy's body is put into the coffin. And so that nobody gets the giant Hollywood funeral because they all think they're there for Felix Farmer. So that forgotten man on the beach does end up getting buried with all of Hollywood paying him homage. They just don't know it's him. So that's supposed to be the punchline. But that gets lost in the way Blake delivers it. And it doesn't land as a joke and it's not funny you don't need 18 references for that joke to pay off sob is half inspired and the other half like you said is really indulgent and kind of tiresome if you were to find a blake edwards scholar somebody who truly admires the man's work and you were to cut this down to like 98 105 minutes you might have a much better movie because this has a lot of stuff that doesn't need to be there. I can't take any of the musical numbers. When they showed the musical number that is part of the bomb that is supposedly the worst film, um, there's a reason it's a bomb. It's a horrible musical number. And we have to watch it over and over. Some people in this movie are not funny. Robert Weber. Um, Robert Vaughn. <laughs> Robert Vaughn is funny. Here's the thing. You can watch this movie. And you can just play the game of who are they really playing? Robert Vaughn is clearly doing Robert Evans. Loretta Swit as a as a gossip columnist. Lover on Nash. Talented actress. Boy, is she dire in this movie. She is Shrill not. and painful. Yeah, not um, funny. One of my very favorite people in film. One of my very favorite performers. And I think he is given the right material, a genius, is Richard Mulligan. I'm like a soap fanatic. I think his work on soap is unbelievable. The first 30 minutes, he's nonverbal, he's suicidal, and he nails it. But then he starts talking, and I'm done. It's painful for me to say that I'm not a fan of a Richard Mulligan performance. It's impossible to not like Richard Mulligan. He is always trying, usually to good effect, and all he wants to do is make people laugh. Uh, either it's su- silly silly words or, or nonsense, or he does these crazy things where he claps his legs and his knees together and he shoots his arms down and then way up in the air like a six-year-old boy. And even if the movie or the joke is not great, it's just lovable. Yeah, he's from outer space. He's a wonderful, crazy performer. I'll tell you who does kill in the movie every single time he opens his mouth. It's Robert Preston. Robert fucking Preston. Absolutely. The guy steals everything. I don't think he's ever given a bad performance. I grew up on Robert Preston. I didn't know the music man. I knew this movie. I knew Victor Victoria. And I knew The Last Starfighter. <laughs> 
Centauri is impressed. He crushes in this film. He is so funny and so effortlessly funny. And he has the perfect role, which is he's Dr. Feelgood. He's handing out drugs and he knows everything everybody says is bullshit. And this entire culture is bullshit. So he doesn't take any of it seriously. And watching him roll through this thing, calling everybody what they are, calling it out for what it is, never taking it seriously and dispensing drugs. Robert Preston is a force of awesome nature in this movie. And here's my main problem. You know, humor is obviously subjective. So you might laugh your ass off for the first hour of this movie. But once they start dealing with, like, corpses, it starts to get, like, a little bit maudlin. And dare I say, sincere. This movie has not earned sincerity. The really strange part about this is, you know, you've got William Holden here basically playing a guy who's saying goodbye to what he thinks of as old Hollywood with Felix Farmer. That last act is supposed to be the Viking funerals for Hollywood, not just for Felix Farmer. And then William Holden smacked his head and bled out immediately after this and really as the film was coming out. So you have this strange goodbye to William Holden in this movie where it's got this weird maudlin quality going on in his final sequences it's a strange way to wrap up a film career if you want to see a scathing hollywood satire from a man who knows the ins and outs and the ups and downs uh it's not consistently hilarious throughout but you won't see another film that punches hollywood in the mouth like this so blake edwards follow-up to 10 was sob uh and the star of 10 dudley moore he would go on to star in his biggest smash Don't you wish you were Arthur? Would the more attractive of you please step forward? <laughs> it's gonna cost you a hundred dollars. Let's make it two hundred dollars, but I will ask you to simonize my car. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I just think funny things. What do you do for a living? I race cars, I play tennis, I fondle women, but I have weekends off and I am my own boss. Dudley Moore, Arthur, the most fun money can buy. An Orion Pictures release through Warner Brothers. I kind of dreaded revisiting this because I saw it like, I don't know, probably three or four times as a kid and laughed my ass off, really enjoyed it, and I thought... 20-some years later, am I going to love this? Am I going to cringe at the romance? Am I going to hate Dudley Moore? He, Dudley Moore is likable in this movie. He just, the cackle. It's the cackle that gets me. Other than that stupid high-pitched laugh, I think Dudley Moore is drop-dead hilarious in this movie. He is likable, charming, obnoxious, sweet, uh, uh, you know, and, and it's not even heavy lifting for a comic actor like Dudley Moore. The plot is simplicity itself. He's a very rich man who's not going to get his $750 million trust fund unless he marries a stodgy woman he's not in love with, and then he falls in love with Liza Benelli, a shoplifter. Also, there's a butler who literally every single thing the butler says is funny. Every line. <laughs> Except for the lines where he is meant to break your heart towards the end, and he does. This movie is one of those cases where when you look at it, it is nothing but lost potential because we lost Steve Gordon, the writer director of this movie right after it came out. He died in 1982. Like he was an advertising guy. He was making the jump to movies like John Hughes was. And this was his debut as a writer director. You want to talk about a debut where you put yourself on the map 
because this was Oscar nominated. Dudley Moore was never a bigger star than he was coming out of Arthur. And John Gielgud arguably never had a bigger cultural moment than he did with Arthur. And you realize that this guy's voice was so clear as a writer director, and he knew exactly how to nail this screwball romantic comedy. You look at how many crash on the rock, terrible versions of that there are, and then how few really successful later examples they are. And you realize that was a gift. And Steve Gordon had it. I am so curious what he would have been had he actually lived long enough to continue to make these movies and to find a wider range for that voice of his. And considering how often filmmakers have a hard time making just a simple romantic comedy, we shouldn't look down our nose at a good simple romantic comedy. I was afraid that I would be tired. I would hate Arthur, but I didn't. I thought he was very charming. Dudley Moore knows how to be obnoxious up until the point where people are annoyed and then you stop. Well, this was the culmination of his attempt to conquer America because Dudley Moore had the whole first half of his career with Beyond the Fringe and with Peter Cook and with Bedazzled and all that stuff. And that was a different era. That that screen comedy and that persona is so removed from the Dudley Moore that started here with Foul Play. In Foul Play, if you saw that in a theater, he tries to seduce Goldie Hawn and stole the movie in the process. And that led to 10, and 10 was proof that he could do it. And then this was the gift that they gave him where it was like, this script is powerfully weaponized here. He knows what he's doing from frame one. The idea that he could still pull off the delightful alcoholic as late as 81, when already that was kind of a a cliche that had started to fade. And I think he kind of closed the door on that. Like if you were to use that cliche of the unironically likable drunk, it doesn't begin, but it ends with Arthur Buck. I mean, he is that guy. It's a hard one to pull off now, especially in an age where we look at alcohol in a very different way and we look at our social responsibilities differently. You just can't go back and make this kind of film and do it without any sense of of awareness. And I think he is delightfully uninterested in reforming himself. Drew, uh, before we move on to the next film, what would you say is worse, the Russell Brand remake of Arthur or Arthur 2 on the rocks? I think Arthur 2 on the rocks is worse I concur. But I think the Arthur remake is one of those moments where you want to take everybody involved, sit them down and ask them, what the fuck were you thinking? Because that was never going to work. And when we get to Arthur on the Rocks, we'll talk about why that movie needed to be in 1981, because by the time they made that film, that ship had sailed. I'm happy to say that we will have several. I I was a big Dudley Moore fan as a kid. He did a lot more, nothing quite as good as Arthur, but he did a handful of legitimately funny comedies throughout the 80s. So we'll be talking about Dudley Moore a lot more. But now, Drew, we'll move on to the other star of 10. (laughs) Yeah, and boy... This is where the receipt for 10 came due. This is where we had to really pay the bill because we then now have to deal with the idea that John Derrick had been enabled as a filmmaker by the sudden heat around his wife, Bo Derrick, who is not an actor and whose movies are truly a weird, disturbing dead end that we will discuss here in the 80s. And of them, very few had more resources put behind them or less to show for it in the end than Tarzan the Ape Man. MGM presents Bo Derek, Richard Harris, and Miles O'Keefe in Tarzan the Ape Man. It's a great white ape, supposedly 10 feet tall. A great white man. 
supposedly 100 feet tall. God, if the girls back home can see me now. The most exotic woman of our time in the most erotic adventure of all time. Tarzan, the ape man. The truly tensest sequence in this movie is the one in which you're sure she's about to fuck an orangutan. It's uncomfortable in every possible way. Oh, God. To those who are unaware, John Derrick was, in my opinion, an exploitative piece of crap who was fortunate enough to be married to a gorgeous woman named Bo Derrick, and he convinced her to star in Tarzan the Ape Man, Bolero, and Ghost Can't Do It, which we will all we'll get to those ones later. <laughs> they're, but they're, I mean, like... <laughs> He might be the worst filmmaker of the 1980s. Am I wrong? John Derrick he's, might be the worst director of the. Of I would. Decade. I would argue he's probably the worst director to have the biggest releases. And I think because this movie was treated the way it was by Warner Brothers, man, I can't imagine the Warner Brothers executives who had to sit and watch the fucking dailies from this thing roll in. It claims to be a Tarzan story. It is basically a drunk Richard Harris wandering through the forest with Bo Derrick. Occasionally, we see Tarzan, Michael O'Keefe, and there's just a bunch of really. <laughs> my, I'm sorry, Miles O'Keefe. Miles, I say Miles and Miles and Miles O'Keefe. <laughs> oh my God! Yeah, Michael O'Keefe is not playing Tarzan. Sorry, Danny. Um, <laughs> Noonan. I'm trying to watch it as like what an adventure movie would be. I'm trying to ignore the fact that John Derrick couldn't direct a fart to stink. I'm ignoring the fact that Richard Harris is his drunkest ever. And I'm ignoring the fact that Bo Derrick cannot deliver a line. I mean, she she couldn't act like she was in pain if I lit her on fire. Tarzan the Ape Man feels like he was angry at her and did this as like revenge. We just talked about the fact that Blake Edwards directed, you know, SOB. And a big part of that movie is that his wife, his real life wife, Julie Andrews, bears her breasts in the film. And it is considered a big deal because that public persona has something that she built up over time. What, what's interesting about that and not exploitative is that Julie Andrews and Blake Edwards were both very aware of image and how people are viewed in Hollywood. And they made a decision as a couple to to blow that up and to play against it. And Julie Andrews in real life was a far hipper and much more um, contemporary woman than I think she was allowed to play on film. That's not the same thing as a 70 year old dude who's married to a 20 year old who makes movies where the predominant reason they exist is so she is bare naked constantly. Tarzan, it is basically a guy saying, look at my hot wife drool over her. I would even accept this if I thought that the, the movie was okay. We're going to make a Tarzan movie, but we're going to make the Tarzan movie that they could never make in the 30s. And we're going to address the fact that it's a beautiful woman and an insane sculpted specimen of a man who find each other in this jungle. John Borman made that film. It would be amazing. John Derrick is not. <laughs> I, I wanted to call you during this snake sequence because I wanted to ask you how long it was going to run. And it runs for about no exaggeration. Six minutes. About that. And there's weird sequences that go on forever. There's a rock climbing sequence where they are climbing sideways of this rock and we keep cutting to the rope, getting more and more frayed. And it's the worst directed tension. It ends with one of the natives falling to his death. And it immediately cuts to this shot of Richard Harris standing on the cliff at sunset, screaming at God. Why did you do this? It's lunacy. Everything about this is lunacy. This film is infamous for smutting up the Tarzan legend, and it does. But ultimately, it's mostly just boring. Really boring. 
you know, once you'd seen the Playboy spread they used to sell the movie, you'd seen literally anything the movie had to offer because there's really nothing in it. He's not even good enough as a smut peddler. He's incompetent at every part of the formula. If you can make it through the closing credits of this film without getting physically uncomfortable at what might happen, you're a better man than I. Uh, I don't like to speak ill of the dead, but I'm glad that he only made a handful of movies. Now we move on from an atrocious movie to a movie I thought I didn't like until I rewatched it last night, and I really dug it. It's not complete, but it's very cool. Yeah, it's called Wolfen. Orion Pictures presents Wolfen. For centuries, they have been hiding in the rubble of your cities. The concealed threat. The invisible terror. Chris! They can sense the rhythm of your blood. Hear clouds pass overhead. See where you are blind. A force so deadly, it will tear the screen from your throat. Wolfen. Do you get happy when you see the Orion logo? I miss it. I also get happy when I see this phrase, music by James Horner. That makes me happy. Uh, Like a film that we covered earlier, Fort Apache the Bronx, this film also takes place in the early 80s, South Bronx Wasteland. And it's a fascinating landscape for a movie about kind of werewolves, kind of shapeshifter type. Not, let's say werewolves, but not traditional werewolves. All right. Is that fair? I would call this an environmentally themed horror film. And I think that's a subgenre that there's there's a few. Nature pushes back against the encroachment of man. And in this one, I like that it's done through the Native American filter. Albert Finney, of all people, plays a grizzled New York City detective who is altogether now called out of retirement to (laughs) investigate a series of murders that took place in the prologue. I love that his hair is insane in this movie. His hair looks like Danny from The Shining. And I love that he is eating in pretty much every frame of the film. Based on a kind of a trashy novel by Whitley Stryber, and I'm not a big Whitley Stryber fan. I think he's he's kind of a junkie writer, but he's he's got these ideas that people have been able to take and build things around. Uh, The director here, Michael Wadley, is probably best known for Woodstock, the documentary. This is his pitch at making a very different take on a horror film. I'm very curious what it would have been if he had been left alone to kind of finish his edit. Michael Wadley never directed again after this. Because there's some really good stuff in this. It uses a gimmick of first-person camera use when you're kind of seeing from the wolf's perspective. I would say the prototype version of Predator Vision. Well, it was also one of the first big Steadicam movies. And Garrett Brown, the guy that invented the Steadicam, is the actual DP on this. And it's because there's so much of it that is hand-operated Steadicam stuff. Wadley was trying to define how you would use that the way Carpenter did or the way Kubrick did. And I think if you want to talk about the continuity of how we've developed Steadicam language, this is one of those movies where every DP watched this because Garrett Brown shot it. So they all learned from this movie. It's shot very handsomely. He juxtaposes uh, the broken landscape of of rubble and broken buildings. And then like five minutes later, we're in a, a giant penthouse and it jumps back and forth between 
different parts of New York to very interesting effect in this movie. Also, this movie has a lot of subplots. It does. And those threads are kind of used to mislead you before you finally get to who's really doing this and what the Wolfen are. So there's, there's Gregory Hines. There's Diane Venora. There's Edward James Olmos. Tom Noonan has a couple of scenes. Uh, Reginald Vale Johnson from Die Hard. And James Tolkien has one great scene as a coroner. For, for, a, for a monster movie, which is what, essentially what it is, it has some really interesting themes about like urban renewal and homelessness and the way we treat you know, Native Americans and land ownership. And it tackles interesting ideas. And I think that's what Wadley probably got beaten up for by Warner Brothers as they worked on kind of taking the movie and, and shaping it into something more commercial. I think he probably a lot of that is what made him interested in it. And it's why I, I feel like the film is not just a junky horror movie. It also doesn't help that it came out right in the middle of a sort of renaissance going on, if you will, of werewolf and wolf-related movies. And so this one, which really de-emphasizes the creature end of it, I think probably landed a little wrong for those of us who were really excited by the howling or by something that might be coming next month, you know. Mm. From there, we're going to move on to a film that I am going to cede over to Drew because he is A, slightly older than me, and B, much more West Coast than I am. Uh, I am speaking of Penelope Spears's The Decline of Western Civilization. One, two, three, four, one, two, three. Stunning, says Robert Hilbert of the LA Times. Bracing, stimulating, and technically superb, Todd McCarthy of Variety. Anyone who wants to learn about the new music at arm's length should check out Penelope Spheris' chilling new film. Spheris Films presents Fear, Black Flag, Circle Jerks, Germs, and X. See it in a theater where you can't get hurt. Uh, as the opening title card says, this film was shot between December 1979 and May 1980 in Los Angeles, and it is a piece of uh, genuine pop culture anthropology. I think it is a great movie. I think it is a significant movie in terms of really capturing what West Coast punk was at a particular moment. I was a little bit young for this scene, but I saw Circle Jerks and I saw Black Flag Live. I, I got into punk probably 85, so about five years after this. And one of the reasons that I went to punk shows was because they were held at armories and places where there was no alcohol served, so they were all ages shows. You could get in and actually see them. By that point, punk had already started to become, I think, a little bit more codified and the, the musicianship was getting a little better. And these bands have been around long enough that they sort of had their legs under them. What this movie does is it captures them at the moment that they're all raw and they're all new and this is all kind of happening for real. And so you've got a pretty broad range of bands here. You've got the Germs, who I think are, uh, I don't use this word lightly, I think Darby Crash had something wrong with him. I think that you watch him in this movie, he is, I think, as uncharismatic as anybody's ever been on a stage. But I think early Black Flag is pure energy. I love the stuff with fear in this movie, with Lee Ving. And I think the best band in the film by far is X. And all the stuff with John Doe and Xine Cervinka is terrific. They do a version of Johnny Hit and Run Pauline here that is outstanding.
and I think more than anything, what this does is captures an entire scene that was already basically gone by the time she cut the film. And I think gave these people a mythic status that they might not have had if Spheris hadn't been there. And, you know, her later working on Wayne's World and stuff like that, uh, it makes sense because she comes at it honestly. She has a real love of music and she has a real love of that world. I can uh, say very little about this film except that it is a testament to the theory that any subject can be interesting if the filmmaker is good. While I'm still not a huge fan of this kind of music, there's no denying that this is the definitive punk rock documentary. I think it's interesting because on one hand, it now exists as a snapshot of a culture that doesn't really exist anymore and a lot of people who are no longer with us, but it also underlines the idea of what was what seemed so harsh and so extreme 25 years ago. Now we look at like... like that was what our parents got so angry about? Really? Oh, they're, they're bratty little kids for the most part. There's that story they tell when they're standing in the kitchen and, and the girlfriend, uh, Darby Crash's girlfriend, is telling the story about the dead guy they found behind the house and how he'd been there for several days and he had fallen off the house while he was painting. And they went outside and they took pictures with him. And she's telling the story. They're like little children trying to be naughty to get a reaction. And they're not really naughty. They're just they're they're looking to see if you're going to be upset. Spheris just kind of revealed them. They are children. That's one of the things that it's defining about it. They're, they're so young. And I love the irony of the title. Any generation always calls the, the younger generation and their, their culture is the decline of Western civilization. It could be punk rock, could be heavy metal, it could be whatever your kids are listening to today. But that's the irony is that it's not the decline of Western civilization. It's young people trying to find a voice. That's what it is. Exactly. And that's why the best bands in this, you know, X they automatically stand out because there's something real going on there and they figured out a way to really harness it and it makes everything they do in the movie electric. I knew you'd have a lot more insight because I don't know that music at all. I know who Lee Ving is because he's in Clue. And John Doe shows up in a million movies in the 80s. Yeah, but John Doe, I get his name mixed up with so many other guys. Um, <laughs> so now we move on from a very good documentary to a comedy that's only slightly better than Beatlemania, Under the Rainbow. What the hell's going on here? Guess what happened when 150 midgets checked into a hotel in Hollywood to make one of the world's biggest movies. I want a room. What happened to that hotel and to Hollywood has to be seen to be believed. Now, the real madness can be shown. Give me my bucket! That's my favorite bucket! The cable! And believe you me, it's not short on action. It's not short on danger, and it's not short on romance. Bruce Thorpe, United States Secret Service. Okay. And I uh, suppose that's your gun, huh? Oh, no, I wear a uh, shoulder holster. And you better believe it's not short on laughs. If you haven't already guessed, it'll be out shortly. Chevy Chase, Carrie Fisher, and 150 of Hollywood's smallest stars in Under the Rainbow, a giant comedy. Coming from Orion Pictures. What an interesting hotel. Why? Why was this made? I know that there are the famous stories about the Munchkin debauchery, and they're legend, and there's no doubt about that. Stories about how they took over the hotel, and there was orgies, and, and they burned rooms to the guy. It was just insane. And if you want to make a movie about that, that's fine. But this that's not what this is, not really. And it doesn't have the courage to actually do that. 
the movie doesn't lean into the debauchery that's happening. They, it's very safe and it's very tame. Instead, this is a weird spy comedy that plays out against the backdrop of the Munchkins coming to town to shoot the Wizard of Oz. So you have, as they put it in the poster, 150 midgets. Uh, way to go, Warner Brothers. It's not a one sheet you're going to want to track down and put on your wall today. Um, yeah, you've got Carrie Fisher. And th- that's another thing that's heartbreaking here is we don't have many Carrie Fisher leading roles. So when you get to watch one that you haven't seen in a long time, you kind of hope for something. You hope that she'll stand out or you hope that maybe the film works better around her than you remembered or whatever. Nope. It would be nice to be able to say the movie's terrible, but Carrie Fisher transcends the material. No. She's just as lost as everybody. The film is not good. Uh, she, her performance is not good. And she had said in later years that, A, it was the worst film she'd ever been a part of. And, B, she was coked to the gills. She openly admitted it. It's a horror show of a movie. Um, she plays the studio liaison who was supposed to coordinate with all the little people and keep them in line while they're in town. Chevy Chase plays a secret service. And he is assigned to, for some reason, an Austrian royal. And then there is a Japanese and German spy plot that is playing out where Billy Barty is the German spy and he's supposed to run into a a Japanese spy. It's convoluted even in the setup. Oh, and the the guy that Chevy Chase is protecting believes he's going to be assassinated. And there is an assassin who is actually trying to kill him during the entire movie, leading to a series of dead dog jokes. Oh, it's so belabored, man. Under the Rainbow, I remember not liking it as a kid. Obviously, I didn't know how terrible it was, but even as a kid. I didn't laugh for a Chevy Chase movie with 150 little people and Carrie Fisher and allegedly madcap humor. I should have been laughing. And this movie is just deservedly forgotten. I will continue to uh, focus on Carrie Fisher's quality work. There's a lot of World War II movies this summer. And this month in particular, there's a bunch, which leads us into our next film. You, I am the king of Segway. What are you doing? That was great. How? That was the best Segway. Bam, dude. You got to give yourself a little shot when you Segway like that. Are you saying pow? What are you saying? There you go. Uh, So I asked today on Twitter to see if my theory was right. And it is. It's a better remembered film for people that were our age in the early 80s in the UK and in Europe, because this movie is very European. I'm speaking about the film that in America we know as Victory. Everywhere else in the world, it was Escape to Victory. In 1942, the Nazis thought they were sitting on top of the world never suspecting that they could be toppled in one conflict. It has been decided that a German national team will play a combined team from the prisoners of war of the occupied territories. A stacked game. The Third Reich's finest against a ragged bunch of prisoners of war. The Germans thought they had it made. This match is a propaganda stunt for the Germans. It's a wonderful opportunity. The Allied High Command called them crazy. And maybe they were. We want you to contact the resistance for us and arrange the escape of the football team. So I want to thank you all for your concern, but I'm really not planning on seeing Paris until after the war. Escape to Victory, starring Sylvester Stallone, Michael Caine, Max von Sydow, introducing Pele, and featuring an international all-star team made up of the greatest names in football. How'd you like to play football against the Germans? Why not? This is a weird film. Well, and it's got Hogan's Hero Syndrome, where life in a German prison camp isn't really that bad because you can go in and out. It's it's like the Nazi prisoner of war camp is so pleasant that you might consider coming back when you could escape. 
He does. There's that insane scene in the middle of the film where he literally escapes, goes to Paris, and then comes back, and no one noticed. What a bad idea for a movie. Well, and it's based very, very, very loosely on something called the game of death. And obviously what somebody did was they love this notion that, okay, we can tell a story where we get all of these real-life European football players, we put them in this movie, we have them go up against the Nazi team, and we'll get real football players, and it'll be great, and people will be excited in the theater, and we'll use the Ipswich Town Squad, and whatever appeal there was for that was very, very minimal in America. Like, even with Pele involved, and Pele was maybe the only soccer player that most Americans knew, even with him involved, hard sell, man. The rah-rah sports stuff is not not bad, but when you look at it in the context of where it takes place, <laughs> in this <laughs> oddly unhorrible POW camp, and this was directed by John Houston, and which is crazy in a different way. Famously went overseas and shot a lot of footage of World War II, and then made what looks to me like a very safe, simplistic, scrubbed-up World War II movie. I think that soccer fans would absolutely love it because of what you said. It is laden with famous soccer players. Bobby Moore is a guy who's a huge name, huge name for soccer fans in, in England, and that was huge for them. And you talk to the uh, people from the UK and they talk about how this is shown on TV in the holidays and it's kind of a holiday family thing. You watch it with your dad. It's all your dad's favorite football players because they're from kind of an older generation. And the last giant football match is this beautifully choreographed. The ending is really good. I'll give it they that. They put time and money into that thing. It's a beautifully shot football game between the Nazis and the... I mean, it's just crazy. I, I find the whole premise nuts. International All-Stars versus All-Nazi team. It's it's really nuts. I mean, Michael Caine is good. So that's just Stallone. Not a great performance, but it's really interesting to see him at this stage of his career doing something like this. It's a great moment in the middle of the film where they have to get Sylvester Stallone onto the field somehow. They have to get him playing as the backup goalkeeper, and the Germans need proof before they'll put him in as a substitute. So they have to actually break a dude's arm in order to get Stallone on the field. And that scene kind of, kind of insane. And the one thing that I clearly remembered from when I saw it when I was 11. Overall, a lot of it is a little starchy and dated, but I can see how sports fanatics would hold this one in, in high regard. Now, what's the next World War II movie we're talking about? Oh, time? now here's one. Victory I had seen as a kid, thought it was dull, saw it a couple weeks ago, liked it a bit more. I have the needle. I had never seen and watched it last week. He's a ruthless Nazi spy who uncovers the Allies' secret plan. Find him, Godleman. It could cost us the bloody war. Nothing can stand in his way until passion crosses his path. I'm sending an urgent message. Do you hear me? Donald Sutherland stars in Eye of the Needle. Hugely familiar as a title to most Star Wars fans, because obviously this is where Richard Marcon got the attention that ended up netting him the job directing uh, Return of the Jedi. But a lot of kids never saw it. This is a World War II thriller about a psycho Nazi spy played by Donald Sutherland. He's on the run. He has information about the Normandy invasion that he's desperately trying to get back to his superiors. And he ends up stuck on an island with Kate Nelligan, who is caring for her now crippled young husband. And it takes a while to get to that final act. And it's cool. Once they get to the island, everything gets very focused. Sutherland is so great. We were talking earlier about how you put actors in roles that just don't fit them. 
look at him in gas at where it's clear that they said, we've got you for three days. We're going to stick you in this helicopter set. Just say as much as you can say, and we'll cut it and we'll try and find something that works afterwards versus this, where he shapes a character and is the lead and is so dynamic and interesting. Yeah, this might be my my discovery of the month. I'm really I really enjoyed this one. I don't want to give too much of the plot away. It does have some really cool twists and surprises. It, it reminded me a little bit of Nighthawks, and it has kind of that rough action edge where like some brutal things happen very matter-of-factly and then the movie just moves on from it and i think it takes the war seriously i think i think world war ii is is a very grim backdrop here and there's a there's a feeling that he fits the sort of madness that that is the backdrop of the movie it's pretty great i would say it's worth seeing just for donald sutherland's awesome performance but the whole film is good i really dug eye of the needle i'm not surprised that uh lucas was impressed with it enough to meet with richard markhand he obviously got really good performances out of his two leads and uh i think that's what he wanted is somebody who was good with actors from there we move on to if you don't know by now, I'm I'm born and raised in Philadelphia. I've lived in Austin a few times throughout my life, but uh, Philadelphia is my first and only home. I grew up obsessed with movies that were shot in and around Philadelphia. Rocky, Mannequin, Trading Places, all the classics and everything. But I think the most impressive use of Philadelphia on the whole is Brian De Palma's fantastic blowout. It began with a sound that no one was ever supposed to hear. He's the one I saw? Yes, he says he pulled a girl out of the car. I would like you to forget about her. Yeah, that's what I heard just before the tire blew out. You're right, it was a shot. He recorded a murder. They say it never happened. There are still loose ends, witnesses. The girl, I've decided to terminate her. Brian De Palma's Blowout. Now you hear it. Now you don't. I'm glad that we've already talked with Nancy Allen a little bit about this, but um, for those who didn't listen to that episode because you're not a Patreon subscriber, uh, I really want to point at this one and say Blowout is the title of the month for me. I think Blowout is Brian De Palma's best movie. I think Blowout is a terrific, terrific thriller, and I think it's also John Travolta's finest performance. He breaks my heart in this movie. The movie is masterfully shot, brilliantly edited, very clever screenplay. How goddamn good is their bad guy? How good is their bad guy? John Lithgow, I mean, good Lord, when is he never not great? But just seeing him in an early performance, and he's got like five or six scenes, and every time you see him, he's ominous and creepy. Blowout is essentially about a low-budget filmmaker. He's a sound recordist. He's out in the park filming, and he hears uh, a car coming, and then he hears a bang. The car goes into the river. He jumps into the river, Travolta, and pulls out this woman. And another man dies. Turns out he's a very important politician. She may have been there for ulterior motives beyond just uh, man-woman relations. This is the perfect post-Chappaquiddick, post-JFK movie. This is the perfect thriller for an age where paranoia had kind of set in and nobody trusted what they were hearing anymore. It's crazy when you look at it now because it feels very contemporary. The idea that we don't believe what we see on the news. We shouldn't believe it. It's very easy to manipulate. It's very easy to create a narrative that gets sold. And to watch how heartless the wiping away of people is in order to protect a secret is what I think makes this movie stand out. The human toll and blowout is, is painted on a very personal level. It's got, I think, 
one of the greatest setups and punchlines in any thriller ever, where the last 10 seconds of this movie, if it doesn't land on you like a dump truck dropped off of a building, then you're just not watching the same movie I am. Uh, the first time I saw it, it destroyed me. It's so great. Yeah, it's got a dark ending and then a, a twisted little denouement. You like my French? And uh, I, I love it. I love I love all the decisions that De Palma makes in this movie. I'm a huge De Palma fan. I don't love all his films. I think some of his films are half brilliant and half messy. But I think Blowout is if not his best, easily in his top three, without question. It's one of the ones where he got everything right. He just knew what he was doing. He hit the ground running. We're going to be talking about a movie next month called Prince of the City, which Travolta was attached to for a long time as an actor, and De Palma was attached to as a director. There's an entire sequence in Blowout that was essentially them repurposing some of the ideas that they had, which is this whole flashback to what Travolta's character, why he got out of the law enforcement business. And that's all stuff that was originally an idea from Prince in the City that they took with them. And they said, well, we're going to we're going to do something with this. And I love that Travolta was so intimately involved with the Palma. And I think it's one of the reasons that this character really feels like a great fit for him he's playing it so laid back he's just a normal he, there's no histrionics there's no crazy heroism as a movie star performance goes he's remarkably normal yeah he's really really good in this film and i don't in general think travolta is that great of an actor but if i were to point to one of his better performances or even best and nancy allen it, heartbreakingly great she's so sweet and so funny and this character could easily be played as a dumb casualty of this whole thing and there's certainly a bimbo version of the character that could be played but what nancy allen does so well is she keeps getting these little human moments that break through whether it's how she fins off um the horrible advances of dennis franz or whether it's how she shines when she talks about her makeup work and what she wants to do in life she really brings it to life and is very very human and real it's not just a really good thriller it's a really good thriller that is full of stuff that movie geeks will adore you get to peek behind sound design. As usual, De Palma's using his his split diopter, where something on the left is, is in focus with something that's way in the foreground on the right. His split-screen techniques, there's just a lot of really fun movie stuff in here that film nerds will enjoy, in addition to it just being a tight screenplay about uh, a guy who meets a girl surrounded by murder. If you're a fan of... Tarantino's work and you're not familiar with this movie and I, you know, hey, no no harm, no foul. One of the things that you should do is after you see this, then go back and watch Death Proof because the way he uses the Pino Dinaggio Jack and Sally theme from Blowout in Death Proof, I find both hilarious, yet it's not just a joke. I There's something about that music that automatically gives a weight to a scene that I think Tarantino's very aware of, but it's a great sort of nod. Very protective of this movie because it is was shot in Philly. Uh, De Palma was re uh, born in Newark, New Jersey, which is very close to Philly, and I believe that he was partially raised here in Philly. It really does feel like a film made by somebody who knows the city, not just tell me three places to shoot. I love that the, my city is used to such cool effect in this movie. I, I like seeing Philadelphia even in a bad movie, but when it's in a good movie, I'm elated. So, uh, Blowout, if you have not seen this Brian De Palma film, this is our pick of the week, without question, and we would love for you to rent it, watch it, and then get back to us on Twitter, and let us know what you thought of Blowout. So we're going to move on to this next movie. We're going to take a deep dive here, Animation Nerds, because this movie we're about to discuss is about as important a movie as there is in Disney history. Not the best movie, not the best known movie, 
But in terms of understanding the history of the medium and watching how it shifted from one generation to the next, this is crucial. And I'm talking, of course, about the fox and the hound. You fell in love with Bambi, Pinocchio, Snow White. Now there's new animation magic. Two pals who didn't know they should be enemies. Todd, I, I don't want to see you get killed. Bursting with excitement, danger, and fun. And the magic of Disney animation. The Fox and the Hound from Walt Disney Productions. Rated G at theaters this summer. Has Disney got a treat for you? It's really charming, and it's very sweet, and it's a movie that I would definitely show a, a five- or six-year-old kid if I had one. <laughs> this is literally the moment between the old dudes and the young dudes, because you had guys like Frank and Ollie, who are two of the classic Disney animators. You have Cliff Nordberg, and then you had younger guys like Don Bluth and John Lasseter and John Musker and Glenn Keane and Tim Burton and Brad Bird and Henry Selleck, all working on this in their earliest days working with Disney. And what happened is this is the moment where halfway through, as they were kind of wrestling to figure out what the movie was, because Wolfgang Reitherman, who was one of the older filmmakers at the studio, he was the one who found the book and kind of started this. But he got forced out early. His vision of this movie was not the movie that got released. Midway through production, Don Bluth staged a walkout. This was when he decided to go in business for himself, and he basically said, what you guys are making is bullshit. Your studio is finished. You're never making a good movie again because you don't know how anymore. We're going to go make great animated films. Go fuck yourselves. And he took Gary Goldman, and he took John Pomeroy, and they just stormed out. So you had older guys who worked on the first half of the production, guys like Randy Cartwright and Glenn Keane and Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson. They worked on it up to a certain point and then left, and then all the younger guys had to figure out how to finish it and make it a movie that would actually come out. And as a result, when you see the film, it feels like several different pieces that have been grafted together. But I don't think it really plays as a whole movie all the way through. It's sequences. And some of them, like, for example, the scene with the bear are all time great animated sequences. But the movie's very strangely built. Yeah, if you want to talk about the narrative, the screenplay, then yeah, it is kind of rambling and a little bit aimless. When you're talking about voice work, animation, sound, it's as good as anything Disney's ever made. Even when you look at how it begins, it's so different because there's no storybook opening. There's none of the conventions that they had built into the Disney language by that point. It opens very quietly. It's just natural sounds as the opening credits play. It almost feels like it's designed to crank up what Bambi was because Bambi changed the views of a whole generation about hunting. And this movie, the whole thing is about prey and about predators and about, you know, the roles you're supposed to play and how you're supposed to hate the other side. And it's it hammers it pretty hard. So I think for a lot of kids, it's probably a grim experience. There's a dog who's hit by a train at one point. It's tough. It's a perfect example of why Disney was floundering. Because I don't know who they were telling stories for anymore. And it was made even stranger by the fact that there was, uh, when this was released in theaters, they released it with this thing called Once Upon a Mouse, which is this sort of, hey, Disney's amazing and look at Mickey Mouse, uh, greatest hits reel that's like 35 minutes long. When they're looking back and you see the range of stuff they've done over the course of the history of this company and you see Fox and the Hound, it feels very much like they're just spinning their wheels. They don't know where they're going to go. They don't know how they're going to proceed as a company. Well, we can just keep doing this. Do you like this anymore? And the audience said no. A lot of times filmmakers, like when they have a proven formula, they get lazy. And I don't think that anybody at Disney got lazy. I think they just kind of got into a 
rut. And they didn't really think outside the box. Of the second tier Disney classics, I mean, you know, you'd put like uh, the Rescuers and the Aristocats and whatnot. I'd, I'm fine putting the Fox and the Hound in that category. It's interesting and I think fitting that Kurt Russell does one of the voices of, of one of the major characters. He does the voice of Copper, the dog when he gets older. And it seems appropriate that this is how he basically said goodbye to the studio because as he says goodbye to Disney, he begins this career with Carpenter undeniably burning to the ground any chance that he will ever be the computer who wore tennis shoes again. This is New York City in 1997. The United States Police Force has its headquarters on the Statue of Liberty because in 1997, the entire city is a walled maximum security prison. Breaking out is impossible. Breaking in is insane. John Carpenter's Escape from New York. You know, Snake Plissken uh, immediately leapt to the the top of the anti-hero icon list. He is an instantly recognizable character. Now, I'm going to speak a little sacrilege, and then I'm going to let you react to my sacrilege. I think Escape from New York is a great movie that has zero idea what New York is actually like. And it is the one weakness of the film. Clearly, John Carpenter did not live in New York, spend any significant time in New York, or really give a shit about making New York a character. His New York is not New York, and that's fine, but it's just not. All right, all right. Let me unpack this. Okay. If the film took place in a contemporary New York, then I would agree with you. But this film takes place in a fictional future. I completely understand. I'm curious to know what specifically did he fail to capture about the New York? Here's the difference for me. When he went back and wrote Escape from Los Angeles, a movie that's not great. Escape from L.A. failed for many reasons, not least of which was because they cut his budget in half as he was shooting the movie. By not great, you mean not good. But the script for Escape from L.A. had more to do with what L.A. was, and it was more satirically pointed about Los Angeles. You had Beverly Hills, which had turned into the people that are addicted to plastic surgery. But that's because John has lived in L.A. his whole life and was writing about a city that he loves and knows. I just don't think New York was the same thing to him. And it's it's the one thing that I think is not great about this movie is I think his New York is it's just a city. And that's fine. It's just not New York. It does have like, you know, some of the iconic images. But for the most part, yeah, it looks like, uh, you know, a back lot. OK, fine. It looks like St. Louis because it is. <laughs> I, I, as a kid, I wouldn't have known, like, the streets of New York from the streets of Chicago, from the streets of my hometown, Philadelphia. Escape from New York, to me, is one of the beacons of my childhood. Uh, I've heard podcasts recently where younger people who are movie experts kind of laugh at the movie, think it's dated, and don't think it's a good film. That's fine. That's all more for me, baby. I think Escape from New York is one of the most... It, entertaining adventure movies. Now, if you wanted to, if you want a movie that's nonstop action, then you might be disappointed. But as far as a quest movie goes, a sci-fi quest movie where he has to get from point A to point B, rescue the president whose plane has gone down and he has a time limit or the thing in his neck explodes and he's going to die. That to me is heaven. The year this came out, I went berserk for this movie. I lost my fucking mind. So when Halloween arrived, I went as Snake Plissken. I got the jacket. I got the eye patch. I got the gun. I was Snake Plissken. Probably did about 
the first 10 houses and every house I went to, they answered the door and they said, what are you supposed to be? And I'd say Snake Plissken. And they go, what is that? And I try and explain it. And they go, that's cool. You look like Indiana Jones. So 10 houses in, I just took the fucking eye patch off, put a hat on and pretended to be Indiana Jones and was livid for the rest of the night. I was like, you fuckers. None of you fucking know. Snake Plissken's awesome. I was so mad. Ensembles at this stage, like really were influential on me. Like after, after Escape from New York, I was a fan of Adrian Barbeau, Ernest Borgnine, Lee Van Cleef, Donald Pleasance, Isaac Hayes, Harry Dean Stanton. Like these were the people like now whenever they showed up in another movie, I was like, boom, that's Frog from Escape from New York. Boom, that's the president from, you know, like that kind of stuff you can't fake. Escape from New York is one of the films that made me love movies. What's great, I played it for Toshi, and he completely 100% fell in love with it again, and it's the same thing. He got immediately hooked by the the premise, and he loved the humor of it. I think what John does so well is he has digested. People talk about Quentin Tarantino and sort of that film nerd language that he speaks like he was the first guy who did that, and that's just bullshit. There was this generation of guys that we were influenced by, and John Carpenter is a blender. Like This is everything that he's ever loved about spaghetti westerns somehow comes out in this, and Lee Van Cleef, it's not an accident that he's cast in this. That's part of, that's a bonus. That's one of the reasons he's there. What is Escape from New York, but Howard Hawks movies in a new outfit. That's all they are. They're, I mean, they're Westerns. When I worked with him one time, I asked him why he's never made a full-blown Western, and I tried to talk him into it. And it was quite telling. John's whole reason for never making a Western is he hates horses. He loves watching them, but he doesn't want to direct them, and he doesn't want to deal with them. And so he'll just never do it unless he comes up with a Western where there's no horses. And that's what he did for his whole career, essentially. <laughs> and like Mad Max, like Raiders of the Lost Ark, Escape from New York was insanely influential for the rest of that decade. So many movies stole this movie's shape, stole this movie's kind of vibe. I mean, Luke Besson recently had to pay money to John Carpenter because it was so close to something he made. And call it by its name, he made a movie called Space Jail. There's no accident. It's such a perfect shape for a movie like this and a hook that there's a that's why people keep leaning on it and borrowing from it and referring back to it because he did it so perfect. The best thing about Escape from New York is the way that it balances the tones. It, it never gets too dark before it gets a little humorous. It's like a shark. It keeps moving and it eats people. So, guys, uh, before we say goodbye, I just one time want to say thank you. If you've been a uh, Patreon subscriber so far, uh, you guys make a huge difference. We love the support, both uh, in terms of reactions you guys have given us and just in terms of the feedback you've had to the uh, special exclusive bonus episodes. We just recently released a full-length uh, commentary for Robert Altman's Popeye. We've also done interviews with uh, Nancy Allen, with Leah Thompson, with Amanda Wiss. We'll be doing more of those, more commentaries. Uh, we just want to make sure that we have so much bonus material to say thank you for the way you have absolutely let us know what works for you and what's exciting to you about the podcast. And we hope to just deliver more of that to you. And again, if you love the show, tweet about us, leave us an iTunes review, uh, anything, uh, and uh, see you next week. And when we come back, guys, we've got Disney's first real superhero. We've got uh, animated uh, R-rated antics, and we have perhaps the single greatest makeup movie of all time. So we'll be back with August of 1981. See you then. <laughs>